Well, good morning to you again. I'm uh, working on a second part of a series I started last week and it'll end today. I'm going to cut as I go. Uh, this is a series on baptism, and uh, this today is on uh, the second part of the question. First question was, what's the big deal about baptism? And the question for today is, what? We baptize babies? <laughs> I want to start off just with a picture here, if you can see the detail of it. I think the people in the first service couldn't see the details. But anyway, I hope I did better than this. This is a priest who has a baby, and he's lost the baby, has fallen into the baptistry. If you look at the faces of the parents there, they're all in horror saying, oh no, <laughs> Our, uh, you, have the, you have the look. <laughs> She's like, what? And the priest is there. I hope I did better than that. Uh, when I was baptized as a uh, 17-year-old young man, uh, I'm six foot five, and the guy who was baptizing me was quite a bit shorter than me, and I happened to take my feet off the bottom when he took me down. And uh, when he tried to bring me back up, he didn't have my feet under me to help me help upright myself. And so he had a hard time uprighting me. It wasn't, it wasn't quite this bad, but uh, sometimes we have these experiences. But anyway, this is a, a baptism of a baby. And so what do we have going on? Uh, I think we have a fascinating passage we read this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is uh, offering uh, some real concerns to the church at Corinth because the church in Corinth was very divided. Some people said they were of Christ, some of Paul, some of Cephas, some of Apollos. And they had all the divisions there. And Paul just sort of cuts to the chase in terms of the issues that were present there, saying, folks, you weren't baptized in my name. I wasn't crucified for you. And they were fighting over all these things, identifying with certain positions, ideas, thoughts. And he was deeply concerned about the division of the church. And it almost sounds like in that passage that he's diminishing baptism. He's diminishing uh, various details there. But what he's really doing is he's exalting the gospel. He's saying the gospel is what we need to be preaching. The gospel of the death, will, and resurrection of Christ and what that means for our redemption is what we need to preach. And the sacraments are not primary. The sacraments are secondary to the gospel. They serve the gospel. They announce the gospel. So it's not that baptism is unimportant. It is important. But the gospel is of primary importance and the baptism and the Eucharist serve the gospel. So we announce the gospel in our baptism. We announce the gospel in the Eucharist, but that is not the gospel. <laughs> we need to make that distinction. So what I find uh, helpful to me as I've taught over the, over the years is to help people see that there are different tiers, levels of importance when it comes to theology. I would say first level of importance is the creed. The creed is a summary that the church came to after four centuries, three and a half centuries of work, thinking, debating, arguing, saying some people were wrong, some people were right. There's a law, you know, two sides of this many times. And they finally came up with a Nicene Creed, which we'll recite a little bit later in the service, saying these are the universal truths that all Christians hold to. And whether today you're Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or many of the Protestant denominations, say the Nicene Creed is summarizing doctrine for the Christian faith. Trinity of God, divinity of Jesus Christ, death, will, and resurrection, our salvation, baptism for the remission of sin. So baptism makes the list of important doctrines. Secondary level truths are truths that churches have that distinguish themselves from other Christians. And what you find in some of those lists is some of the debate over what's the proper candidate? Is it an adult or is it a child? And Baptists are very strong to say it's only adults who are baptized. And you have to be baptized by immersion, where other churches will say, no, it's pouring. And what goes on in that level is not first level importance, it's second level importance. These are issues that are important, 
But they shouldn't be issues that the church divides over. The church is unified over first-tier doctrine. Third-tier, I would say, form and structure. Should the priest wear uh, an alb and stole, or should I wear blue jeans? That's style. Should we use choruses, or should we use hymns? Ah, let's have a fight about that. No, that's style. It's culture. And I think sometimes when we are in the church, we elevate things from second and third tier, try to put them on the top tier, and what do we do? We divide the body of Christ, and we are unwise. And I think we've fallen, to a certain extent, into Satan's devices when we've allowed that to happen. So I challenge us just to think about this properly. Baptism is important. It's first-tier doctrine. We're baptized for the remission of sins. But how that happens and what it looks like is second-tier. But I want to lay out for you a picture of what I think is the true teaching of the Scripture in the church. Question for today, and this is posed to me by my Baptist friends. This is how I hear it sometimes. How did I, or how did you, a committed, and I would say a contentious Baptist, because I refused to baptize an infant at the church where I pastored in the 90s. And uh, I, my refusal caused a pretty good ripple. It wasn't a terror, <laughs> but it was a ripple in the church I pastored. But in my conscience, I could not do it. And you're wise not to go against your own conscience. And Martin Luther said that. Uh, don't go against your conscience, because that's where you are with God at the moment. So don't go against your conscience. But uh, I, I've changed my mind on that. My conscience is no longer bothered by that. But how did I, as a committed, contentious Baptist, come to the place where I was willing to accept infant baptism versus believer baptism by immersion? And that's how the question is often posed to me. And what I would propose to you, there are three reasons why this is a very poor question in its very foundation. The first reason why it's a poor question is believer's baptism will always be a part of the church's discipleship practice so long as the church is committed to the Great Commission. We are called to go into the world to preach the gospel to every creature. We don't grab babies and baptize them, as much as some people might fear. <laughs> Off the street, hey, well, we that's another one in the kingdom. You're boom, boom, boom. Uh, no, we go and preach the gospel. And as we share the gospel with people, we have people who come to faith and say, I believe. And they express their faith through their baptism. And so as long as we are about the business of the Great Commission of Jesus Christ, we will always have converts to the faith, and we need to baptize them because we go into the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them all things that God has commanded us. So baptism is the result of evangelism and is the first act of a person's discipleship to Jesus. Okay? Number two, it's a poor question because the preferred mode of baptism, even among Anglicans, is immersion. Now, a lot of churches have adopted pouring as their basic practice. That is the exception that has become the rule. As you look in the Bible, in the early church, Christ was baptized by immersion. John was baptizing by immersion. They were out in the wilderness because there was much water there. And they actually baptized by triune immersion, which was name of the Father, name of the Son, name of the Holy Spirit. And you'd baptize three times. And that was triune immersion. And some uh, uh, brethren groups, you know, uh, held that up as the primary way we should be baptized. And I think probably accurately. But in the church, you also found, due to convenience and various other issues, that if you didn't have water, I mean, if you didn't have enough water to immerse, what do you do? You need to pour water over the head three times. And that was the allowance. So what became the exception, was the exception, became the rule of the church. And I think maybe sometimes for legitimate reasons, sometimes it wasn't a lot of water, 
Sometimes there was persecution. You couldn't go out to a place where there was a lot of water, so you baptized within a small house that probably didn't have a big tub or pool for immersion. And once church buildings were being formed, they weren't building big tanks inside, like sometimes you find in some churches, to, to baptize. And so pouring became the rule instead of the exception, which I think... So I think it's a f- bad question, number one, because... Uh, the preferred mode, even today, is immersion, and I think we will do that as we go forward in our practice, uh, but I certainly have no qualms about anybody says, I don't want to be immersed. Pouring is fine, so long as we do it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian formula. The third reason it's a poor question is the issue is not infant baptism versus believer baptism by immersion. The question is infant baptism and believer baptism by immersion. A lot of my friends think that I gave up believer baptism by immersion. I have not. I've only added to it infant baptism. And I want to share with you some of the reasons why I've come to that perspective and understand it. And uh, when you go to uh, our arguments for why we do things, for me as someone who's a theologian and student of church history, I'm always thinking about, especially as an evangelical too, Someone who wants to base my truth on Scripture. I want to look to the Bible first. I want to see what the Bible has to say about things. And what I would declare to you is that while the Bible has clarity about adults, that adults should be baptized as as adult believers by immersion, there's no clarity on either side of the issue regarding infants because it it isn't ever raised as a question and it's never answered directly. Do you find some patterns there? Yes. But I would say the scriptural arguments I'm going to present to you are not absolutely conclusive, even though they provide a level of evidence that build up the case for, uh, for infant baptism. So let me just share that with you first. The first slide is the one that I gave you last week, and if you're going to study this out some more, go back to the sermon I gave last week, and I talk about these five symbols that baptism provides for us. And look at these texts. They're, they're really general to baptism, not so much specific to infant baptism. But spiritual cleansing, new birth, participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, becoming part of God's family, and then being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And those, I think, are very strong foundations for the doctrine of baptism. But what about infant baptism specifically? The first thing I point you to, and what most people argue about, are the household baptismal codes that you find and experiences that you find in the book of Acts. There are several places where an individual... This is a very patriarchal society, but it was also a society that had this understanding that families were not just a a group of individuals who do their own thing. A household is a place that has bonds together. They have commitments to each other. They have covenants that they live with, and there's some type of, of spiritual power associated with a household unit. And when someone like, uh, say, uh, Cornelius, Acts 10, Lydia, Acts 16, Philippian jailer, Acts 16, Crispus, Acts uh, 18, or the household of Stephanus, as we read about this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when an individual who was a leader of a household was baptized, many times that meant that his whole household was baptized as well. And what people who believe in infant baptism assume is, hey, there were children in that family, and so therefore infants probably were baptized. Baptists look at that and say, you can't prove it. There's nothing that says infants were there, and they think everybody who was baptized had to be an adult who made a profession of faith. And I would say there's an argument from silence on both sides. Nobody knows whether there are infants there or not. And so you can't declare a doctrine based upon silence because that's just poor argumentation. And so I would say these household baptisms, was it possible? 
that there were infants there? Very much possible. But is it something I can declare with definitive tr- proof? Absolutely not. So I think this is important, but doesn't stack up as primary evidence. Second thing, covenantal parallels of initiatory rights, which is possible. There are a number of times when Paul and other writers of Scripture make a parallel between the initiatory rights of covenants. Now, God was a covenant-making God. And in his covenants, he, he made and declared, he provided signs of his covenant. And for the Abrahamic covenant, to be part of that, your signature of the covenant was circumcision of male children, typically on the eighth day. And so Paul, when he was uh, declaring his own pedigree in Philippians chapter 3, I think it is, and he's talking about how he has all this pedigree in Judaism, he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, he wasn't making a decision on the eighth day. His parents were making a decision for him, right? And he was circumcised on that eighth day. And that brought him into the covenant, the covenant of his family, but also the covenant of the Jewish covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant that he was a part of. And so this covenant had practices that were associated with initiation. And those happened to children and also to adult converts of Judaism. Uh, In the book of Acts, we have a group of people called the God-fearers. Sometimes if you read Acts, you're going to come across this word God-fearers. The God-fearers were Gentiles who were converts to Judaism. They were fully persuaded that Judaism was true. They held to the law. They observed the, they, uh, went to the synagogue and worshipped there, worshipped Yahweh God. But one thing they didn't want to do was to be circumcised. I can't imagine why. <laughs> as an adult. <laughs> but anyway, they didn't, uh, I'm not even going to describe that. I'll let you just know for yourself. They didn't want to be ba- uh, circumcised because, and I'll just leave it, because. Yeah, that's it. And anyway, so, uh, so they, they came that far, and so they weren't called full Jewish converts. They were God-fearers, people who supported the synagogue, people who attended, people who observed, but they didn't go so far as to cross that line and be circumcised. And so those were the adults, but we also know that children were circumcised in, in that time. And so when Paul raises this parallel, what you find going on here are some very interesting arguments from analogy from one covenant to another. And he says, in him, Christ, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, so here's circumcision, baptism, talked about together, in which ye also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now this is a very complex passage and one that I think even scholars debate over as far as the various details. But what's obvious here is there's two physical practices that are out there, circumcision and baptism. And we know what those look like. There's also two spiritual realities associated with them. Circumcision of the flesh was not effective in itself unless it was circumcision of the heart, where someone truly believed and followed Yahweh God. And that was the thing that made it effective, that circumcision effective. And baptism is something that's out there, something physical, but there's also a spiritual reality that we come to embrace fully the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for us, and we died with him, we were buried with him, and we rise again to walk in newness of life. And without that spiritual reality, it's somewhat ineffective. And what Paul is calling upon here is a parallel between circumcision of the old covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and baptism of the new covenant have parallels with each other. Now, is he saying anything about infants in this passage? No. He's not talking about infants. He's talking about converts in general. He's talking about people coming into the covenant. And so without the clear declaration about infants, I would say this is somewhat inconclusive. 
but it is evidence that goes along with the stacking up as you, as you look at the initiatory rites and how they work, and I think there is parallel between the two. Where I find a little bit more convincing evidence in the New Testament is in Acts 2, which I read for you last week. Acts 2 has a very interesting statement. Repent and be baptized. And this was the Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And after he preached his sermon and told them about who Jesus truly was and how all the prophecies related to him, they said, what should we do? And his declaration was to them this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. What's fascinating about this passage is that we read the first part last week, but the rest of it that goes on in that second portion that I bolded for you and underlined, uh, if I capitalize, I'd be yelling. <laughs> I bold a little bit louder. If I underline, it's a little bit louder. When I, when I capitalize, it's, it's yelling. Uh, for the promise is for you. So you're my hearers. You're out there. I'm preaching to you. Well, you asked me the question, what should you do? And I said, this promise is for you. Repent and be baptized. You receive the Holy Spirit. It's for you. It's for your children. And it's for those who are far off. Well, who are the ones who are far off in Paul's theology, in Peter's theology? This is Peter here. Gentiles. So this is something for Jewish people. This is something for Gentile people. But for some reason... Peter also says, this is for your children. This is for your children. This message, and for as many as God calls. And I think what you have putting forward here is a possibility. He's inviting this idea. This is repent and be baptized. Now, verse 41 sort of goes a little bit against that, and that's where I want to be fair. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Were the children receiving uh, the word that day and making decisions? No, I don't think so. But were they present? Could they have been present? A part of that? It's a possibility. But again, I don't think it's absolutely clear. And so what I resort to in my own understanding is not just the Bible, but also theology. Okay, so we're moving to something. I want to make you aware of a distinction here. The Bible does not give us a clear statement about infant baptism. And yet, theology is based upon more than the Bible alone. We sometimes say, I want to look for Bible statements, and I'll take Bible statements, and that's where all my theology is. If that's what you do, you're going to lose a lot of doctrines because history and uh, philosophy and uh, various reasoning goes with this. And even experience is something we all look to as things that are part of our theological system that we build up. Two examples I give you is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, there are clear statements in the New Testament where it says, you shall baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that language there is rather, uh, it's, it's, it's not a full orb statement of Trinity. When we talk about the Trinity, we say there are three persons in the Godhead, the one Godhead, and that one Godhead has one usia, or one being. And, the, and, uh, and we use this philosophical language, which was tools of language they were using in the second and third century. And we, in the fourth century. And we say, okay, that's my doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three persons with one nature. And anybody who doesn't support that is outside the doctrine. But you don't get that from direct statements from the New Testament. This is philosophy. This is reasoning. 300 years of the church arguing and debating over this, saying, 
I'm sorry, this is a, this is a church position. Modalists, you're out. Arians, you're out. You're not on task with this. Saying all these, and making these clear distinctions, saying this is our orthodox position. And so when you get to the Nicene Creed, when we say we believe in the Father, I believe in the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they are one, one being with the Father, we're declaring theology that goes beyond a statement of Scripture. The other thing that's kind of naive for evangelicals sometimes is we have a Bible, and our Bible is made up of 66 books. Where in the Bible does it say there are 66 books? Where does it list them? Table of contents, of course. Was the, t- <laughs> was the table of contents part of the first Bible that God was giving and deciding to Paul and uh, the various writers of the Bible? No. The church took these books, these various books, examined their theology based upon the creeds of Judaism and Christianity, rabbis and bishops, and they looked at them through the creed and said, this one is true and this one's not. This one belongs and this one doesn't. And they had various criteria they measured by, and they came up with, I think, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the 66 books that we observe to be our Bible. And that was a process that went beyond statements of Scripture. That's very important for us to hear, that we have theology that goes beyond just clear statements of Scripture. And so when you realize that, you say, okay, now I have something to work with. I don't have to just look at a clear statement of Scripture. Well, let me take you again through our theological arguments for infant baptism. The first one goes right back to the theology of covenant. God is always a God who takes initiative. He wants to have relationships with his people, even his fallen people. He had relationships with Adam and Eve before the fall. He has relationship with fallen people since the fall. And he always has signs he initiates his covenants with. What was a sign of the Noahic covenant with Noah? The rainbow. The sign with the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision. The sign of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath, the seventh day. Uh, The new covenant is baptism. And so each one of the covenants that God has given, he has signs integrated to them. And he also demands of those who enter into covenant with him that they exhibit within themselves covenantal faithfulness, which means they exhibit faith toward God and they keep fidelity to the principles and, and standards that God has given forth in his covenant that he's made with them. He wants people to exhibit covenantal faithfulness. And when the Jews did not exhibit covenantal faithfulness with God over extended periods of time, what did he do? He sent them into exile. He sent them into judgment. He sent uh, heathen uh, nations to overthrow them and to defeat them for a period of time to bring them to a place of repentance because God demands covenantal faithfulness. Now, one of the first covenants that God gave to humanity was a covenant of family. And I think, for me, if I think about infant baptism, the thing that brought me to it most clearly was my own theology being transformed into a better theology of the family. What is the family all about? The family is a covenant. The family that God established was that a man and woman would come together before God and they would become one flesh in him. They would become one personhood in him, in a sense. And we would lose ourselves in each other. And what God does for that sacred union and that covenant, he says, I demand of you covenantal faithfulness. And when you are faithful to your covenant and to God and one another, your marriage, your family, your household will be held together in that powerful bond of love and commitment that you have one to another. And the question becomes, what about children? But before I go there, let me just pause real quick, because here's something I want to say. 
I will never apologize to preach the Word of God and teach the Word of God straight as it is. But at the same time, I also realize pastorally there are people whose lives sometimes aren't as neat and clean as Scripture, right? And there have been divorces, and there have been decisions made in life that maybe uh, when I preach on this, it strikes the heart. And you say, ah, I've got this, I've got that. God meets you where you are. God meets you where you are with the truth that you have. And sometimes you knew the truth, sometimes you didn't know the truth. And I think what we offer as far as the gospel of Jesus Christ is the grace of God is sufficient for everyone. And if you have things in your past that you have to repent of, repent of them. But at this moment in time, embrace who you are, where you are, and make the commitments you need to make and move forward in faith with your life in Christ. Now, I want to raise for you, and I think the church has failed in many times in putting forward a good theology of the family. I don't think I had a good theology of the family as a Baptist. I know the Episcopal Church failed in terms of its teaching on the family. It gave up a lot of ground in terms of divorce and other issues, and I think where it is right now is partly due to the fact that it gave up its theology, its biblical theology of the family. And so let me raise for you a couple passages that I think in some ways was just cut to clarity, but also in some ways cuts to the quick of our hearts because it's a high measure. It's a high bar to measure up to in terms of fidelity, covenant fidelity. And the first passage is in Malachi. Malachi is, is tough. <laughs> He's a prophet. And he goes, to the, he goes for the jugular. And he says, God hates divorce. And he raises that. But listen to his language. Take from this negative statement a very positive theology regarding the family and, and how we ought to live our lives in our family units and households that we have right now. The Lord, and the question that's being raised in this passage is, why isn't God accepting our sacrifices? Why isn't he pleased? Why isn't he showering his blessings upon us? And God says, let me tell you why. Give me the first reason. And this is the second reason he gives as to why he's not you know, blowing them away with blessing because they're offering sacrifices and going through the motions of their faith religion. And he says, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife, what? By covenant. She is your wife by covenant, and you have been faithless to her. You have not exhibited covenant faithfulness. Did he not make them one? That's the language of Genesis 1. With a portion of the Spirit in their union? Now, there's a place to build some theology of marriage. When you, when you stand before the altar and you pledge yourselves and you do it before God, God gives a portion of his Spirit to your marriage. His spirit is poured out there. The spirit has been invoked over your marriage so that God is present there to help you with grace to, uh, to get through any situation and any failure that you possibly could have. And so he's given, has he not made you one? Has he not given you a portion of the spirit in your union? And what was the Lord, one God seeking? He was seeking godly offspring so that generationally, this faith would be perpetuated and your family and your household, your lineage would be perpetuated and the faith of Judaism would be perpetuated from generation to generation. And we could say the church, the, the faith of Christianity, passed on from generation to generation as the beautiful bonds of a loving family and a covenanted faithful family passes on the faith to children and it goes out and extends to the ends of the earth and to the end of time. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth or the husband of your youth. 
For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. He does violence to himself, to his family, to his covenant, to his life, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. That has a lot of negativity in that statement, but it also has a lot of positivity. How we ought to live our married life together, right? God's given us the gift of his spirit. It holds us together. And our covenantal faithfulness holds us together as one and allows godly offspring to be raised up from our families so their children who follow the Lord and serve the Lord and perpetually through time, there are people following God's ways just naturally out of our own homes. The second passage comes from the New Testament. Paul is dealing with the issue of marriage. He's dealing with the issue of concern. There's probably been in this example a, a person who's come to faith they weren't married as a believers, but one of them has come to faith. And so now you have an unequally yoked couple. One's, one's a believer, one's not. And they're asking the question, do I leave my mate because they're not following and we're not equally yoked? And Paul says, absolutely not. You don't leave your mate. You stay in your marriage. Why? For the unbelieving husband is made holy, separated to God, sanctified because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So what's going on in this passage? It's not saying that just because they're married to you or just because they're your children, they're saved. What it's saying is that you have a sanctifying influence over your own children. And as you stay in that marriage and you stay covenanted faithful in that marriage and you are faithful before God in that marriage, you're, you're putting a hedge of protection and even sanctifying influence over your mate. And you're putting that hedge of protection, that sanctifying influence over your children. And you're setting them apart to God by your own life, by your covenantal faithfulness, by your own godliness, and by your own witness. And they're being set apart to God. Your unbelieving mate or your children. And your influence is there. Can, can you hear the spiritual power of that? It's not just something about day-to-day -day interactions. It's, it's that. But the spiritual power in these bonds of marriage that God has, has brought forward here. And so my statement on infant baptism is this. Infant baptism brings the child into the new covenant and the marriage and family covenant so that uh, that child is a, is a part of your life. They're part of your faith. And when we invoke the Holy Spirit to set that child apart in, in infant baptism, it's a powerful thing that we do. And God has given a portion of his spirit over your family, over that child, to set them apart for faith. Okay? That's what infant baptism does. In my former days, I did had an unexamined theology of my family. My wife and I were covenanted in faith. I believe that. I believe God gave a, a portion of his spirit to my wife and I. But we gave birth to children who were pagans. They weren't Christians. And we prayed for the day that they would accept Christ, prayed for the day they would say the sinner's prayer and become believers. And I remember my, my four-year-old son, Jeremy, our firstborn, went to the door of the bathroom where my wife was just taking a shower, maybe just finishing up her shower, knocking on the door saying, Mama, I want to pray because I want, to, I want Jesus to come into my heart. And that's precious, right? But I look at that and I say, what did he know? Four years old, what did he understand? I'm, I'm 62, what do I know? <laughs> what did a four-year-old know and understand about the gospel? And yet it was precious, it was sweet, but at the same time, it was like we were so anxious for that day that he would accept Christ because we thought, what would happen to him, you know? 
the theology that I had as a Baptist was this age of accountability. And you probably heard that theology before. And the idea behind that is, is that children are innocent until they reach an age where they can discern right from wrong, truth from error. And it's different for each child. Some children are more sensitive to right and wrong and know their sins. But once they know their sins, clock starts ticking. They've got to accept Christ as their Savior and got to say the sinner's prayer. And so it's like, oh, my gosh. What if they're there? What if they're at that point of discernment? And it's almost like this paranoia that runs around your life about, you know, they're no longer innocent. They're no longer not accountable. And now they've reached that age of accountability. I've got to get them saved. And it's like, what is that? What a a poor theology of family. A better theology is you bring your child into your covenant. And in your covenant faithfulness in that home, that child is covered. They're holy. They're protected. They're going to have days of rebellion. They're going to have times when they don't understand. They're going to ask you questions. But it's not something you have to fear. Raise them in faithfulness. Raise raise them in truth. Give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let that grow in their hearts. And then they come to the place of confirmation, the age of 12 or 13, and they have to affirm it for themselves and own it for themselves. They need to do that. That's important for them. It's crucial. But they're covered. They're covered. They're in your covenant. They're in the new covenant. And they're in that through the infant baptism and the invocation of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, come down upon this child. Set them apart for your kingdom purposes. Come into their life. Minister to them. Regenerate their hearts. Bring them to yourself. And then they're your children. They're in your covenant. One more thought. And this is probably a harder one for some of you that I had to come through over a long period of time. My understanding of myself was that I'm a person who needs to be convinced in my own mind for something to be true. And I think that's an important principle. But the other thing is, I also look at myself and say, okay, here I am in 21st century. I'm a person who has learned about something that's taught by the church. And I ask myself, am I the arbiter of all truth? Do I decide whether it's true or not here in the 21st century when it's been a teaching of the church for 2,000 years? And I'm talking about its universal teachings, not just something that's particular to a denomination or group, okay? So what I found fascinating to me and something that convicted me was this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul said, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. He uses three terms for the church. The household of God, which is the church of the living God and a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is a pillar in buttress of the truth. Pillar means a standard upon which a building is built, and buttress holds it up. It's a word sometimes translated foundation, sometimes support, all these different terms. And I would even use the word custodian. And then he says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, which is what the church's responsibility is to be custodian of. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. This is one of the earliest confessions of the church, very early uh, doctrinal confession. And the church is declared to be this custodian over this truth that is being set forward. It's a custodian of the apostles' teachings of what happened and Jesus' teachings himself, and the church carries it forward. And so I look at this passage and I say, wow. The church is the custodian of the truth, built by Jesus Christ, led by the Holy Spirit into all truth, through time, not just in my time, not just working in me. And so I started asking myself some questions, and these are the questions I started asking myself. Because when you look at the evidence, 
We don't have a lot of statement about baptism of infants in the first century. But we know in the second century, by the end of the second century onward, we have evidence of infant baptism, and it was accepted universally by the church. It was something the church was doing just by practice, fully accepted. Nobody was questioning it. There might have been some outlier groups. You really don't get major questions about it until you get very close to the Reformation period. When during that time of uh, the Renaissance, when they really focused on the individual and versus the community, Everybody began to be uh, almost this individualization of, of everything. It's all about me It's and this type of thing. And all of a sudden, you have questions raised about infant baptism, making my own personal decision, yada, 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 all these things. So I began to ask myself, okay, this has been a universal practice and teaching of the church from the second century. Am I the arbiter of all Christian truth? Am I the decider? And if I decide, is it just for me? Is it for everybody? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm the authority. Can I trust the church in its universal teachings and practices? And I say universal teachings and practices because that's the creed, right? It's not a statements of faith. Uh, it's not a universal teaching that the, the Rome is the center of Christianity. It's not a, a, a central teaching of the church that the Pope is the highest official in the church. Those were never universally accepted. They're part of Catholicism, but they're not part of the universal church. Eastern Orthodoxy doesn't embrace that. So can I trust its universal teachings and practices? Can I be taught by the church, the custodian of the truth? Can I submit myself to the will and teachings of the church even when I might not be able to get my head totally around it? And in 2014, I finally said yes. And I was, that was my Rubicon I had to cross in order to become an Anglican priest. <laughs> so I was willing to not just throw away believer baptism by immersion, but accept the fact that the church has had this universal practice. It's a better theology of the family. And now I can embrace infant baptism along with believer baptism by immersion. And that was my process. And those are the reasons by which I came to it. I encourage you to trust the church's universal consensus. Not as individual segmented parts, what they declare. And as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And what's its universal consensus? There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and through all. And Paul would say, Amen. When we read the Nicene Creed in a few moments, listen for the ones I think the authors of the Nicene Creed were mimicking Ephesians chapter 1. One God, one Lord, one Spirit, all these expressions. It doesn't say one Spirit. I don't know why they left that one out. But it says one baptism in those expressions. But my application to you is be baptized. Be baptized. And if you haven't been baptized, remember your, remember your baptism. Live in light of its truth. Live in light of resurrection life. That you died to sin and you're alive to Christ and live in that reality. And the other thing I would add to you is lead your families to Jesus. Lead your families to Jesus. The emphasis this last year on discipling your family and, and uh, family discipleship is right on target. It's right. Lead your families to Jesus. The church has responsibility too. We're helping families and we help evangelize and so we have responsibility too. But lead your families to Jesus. And God will generationally bless his church to be forward, to move to the end of time, blessing his kingdom and his work among us. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that the teaching of this day would 
not be things that cause guilt or cause uh, bad feelings about the past. If things need to be repented of, may they be repented of. But may each person in, the, in their hearts also come to receive the full grace of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit to, from this day of decision forward to move forward to be faithful and covenantal faithfulness. May it renew families with a vision of who they are and what they are and what they, how they serve the kingdom of God and not just individuals within the body itself in that covenant. And God, may our children be blessed and may the church be blessed from this day forward. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.